And now let's turn to God's word together. Romans 8, we uh, conclude our series in Romans 8 as part of our biggest series in Romans. Uh, Last week, Tom looked at verses 28 to 30. I'm going to read from verse 28 so we get the flow of what Paul is saying. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Just a few years after Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome, a great fire broke out in Rome, AD 64, and uh, it destroyed as much as two-thirds of the city. And the emperor of the time, the emperor Nero, he needed a scapegoat, and he decided to blame the Christians. So he started persecuting the Christians In dreadful ways, Tacitus, uh, the historian, tells us about this. He tells us that Nero had Christians dressed up in wild animal skins to be torn to pieces by dogs. He had them crucified. He even had them made into human torches to illuminate his private gardens for his garden parties. The people who were reading this letter for the first time, some of them would have been treated like that for the sake of Christ. What enabled them to endure under those conditions? What enabled them to stay faithful to Christ despite all they suffered, all they were threatened with? Well, I can't help wondering, can't help thinking that Paul's words in Romans 8 would have helped I imagine they would have read them often in the six or seven years between those between receiving the letter and that, that ev- those events. I imagine they would have studied, memorized, meditated over them and prayed through them. And that would have given them a deep and strong sense of where their true security lay 
when everything seemed to be under threat. As we've looked at uh, Romans chapter 8, we've men- mentioned several kinds of animals. We've mentioned uh, scorpions, mentioned swans, mentioned worms, we've mentioned skylarks. Interestingly, of course, this passage only mentions one animal, and that is sheep in this bit. Um, in verse uh, 36. Um, but uh, as we saw over the heights of this majestic last section, it seems to me that actually we rise on wings like eagles to see this glorious vista, these wonderful verses. It is hard to think of anything more glorious in the whole of Scripture. Paul started this chapter, if you remember back to Romans 8, chapter 1, by saying there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Then he's shown us how the Spirit liberates us from life according to the flesh, according to the old principles of how we used to live, how our horizons have been lifted beyond this present age and how we live in that overlap. Uh, Yes, at present, the overlap of the ages, at present we do suffer and groan because the old age, the old order of things is still with us, but we are sustained by our hope of glory to come and our real taste of the future here and now through the work of the Spirit. But how can we be so hopeful, Paul? How can these Christians be so hopeful when Nero is doing his worst to drag them down? What is their hope founded on? What is our hope founded on? And Paul answers, he says that our hope is founded First of all, on God's unwavering purpose, and second of all, on God's unfailing love. This is our eternal security, based on those things, not based on anything we've done, based on God's purposes, God's love. Why are God's people secure then? Well, first of all, let's remind ourselves very briefly of last week's passage, uh, which uh, Tom looked at, God's purpose is secure. We are secure because God's purpose is secure. Um, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then that wonderful, unbreakable chain of salvation. Tom expounded this ably last week, and I don't need to add anything, but I just simply want to note how this contribu- contributes to the flow of Paul's argument. As Leon Morris puts it, God is the author of our salvation and that from beginning to end. He initiated the whole process and he will bring it to completion. He started so he'll finish. If our security rested on our purpose, our plans, our grasp of things, well, we all know we're lost if we're honest about that. There'll be some arrogant and self-deluded people out there who still think they're the master of their fate and the captains of their destiny. But actually, if we're honest, we know we're lost. We know how frail we are. But if God has purposed, then God will do it. And that's where our security comes from. God's people are as secure as God's purpose. And then secondly, moving on to verses 31 to 32, we see that his resources are sufficient. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
Paul here poses the first of four who questions throughout this passage. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul isn't naive. He knows better than anyone that actually many people are against him and the gospel. He knows what that feels like. Many powers range themselves against God and his purpose. And so against God's people. It's the powers, uh, the spiritual powers that are behind Nero desperately trying to stamp out the church. If Nero's power wasn't enough, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And there's the persecuting world, desperate to stop the spread of the gospel. There's even indwelling sin in us that does a pretty, uh, or tries really hard to influence us to, to oppose God in our own lives. We know that. And then there's death, the final enemy. It seems to obliterate all our hopes and dreams in its finality. There's the devil. All, the en- all these things are enemies of God and his people. So it's not that Paul is saying, oh, nobody's against us. He knows who's against us. But what Paul is saying is this. Okay, well, weigh it up then. Yes, make a list of who, all those people and all those things that are against us. We do have enemies. But if God is for us, what can they possibly do? What can they do? All the powers of hell may well set themselves up against us, but they can never prevail because God fights for us. And he is more powerful. He is most powerful. There will be times when it feels like those forces are prevailing. This is when we turn to Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, Paul, but how do we know that God is for us? Well, says Paul, we know this because he sent his son. He gave him up for us all. What more proof do we need than that, that God is for us? It's an argument from the, the greater to the lesser. You know, there may be times uh, when our children feel that uh, when we, they want something and we say no to them, they might think, oh, they don't really love us. But all they have to do then is to remind themselves, hopefully, of all that we have given them and all that we have been to them over the years. And that one thing that we withheld is in the context of all that we have given to them. Well, God has already given us the supreme and costliest gift of his own son. Therefore, how can he fail to lavish on us any gift that is for our ultimate good. Because there is that implied limit on all there. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That all doesn't mean all the things that we can think of that we might quite like. doesn't necessarily mean that Aston Martin that I might quite like. But it does mean, he, does, he, he doesn't give us anything we want no matter what but all things that we truly need. And when he does withhold something from us, we remember the costliest gift that has been given. So never ever think that God is being less than generous. It is for your ultimate good. That may raise questions and tensions. It does. That's what the Bible says. In giving us his son, he gave us everything. 
So his resources are sufficient. And then thirdly, his verdict is guaranteed. Who will bring any charge, verse 33, against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Uh, Paul asks two more questions. The scene has shifted now to the courtroom. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And then, who condemns us? Again, Paul is not being naive. He knows, for instance, that our consciences often condemn us when we've done something we know we shouldn't have done. You've done it again, they say to us. You are simply not good enough to be God's child. The devil accuses us. He loves to accuse us. He loves to get us feeling so guilty that we, we, we're just too ashamed to come into God's presence. You know, the devil accuses us. That's his very name. Satan means the accuser. He ensnares us in our guilt. He gets us to fight shy of coming into God's presence. People accuse us all the time, don't they? The media rails against Christians for our intolerance and bigotry. Our friends and our family may laugh at us and dismiss us. But, says God, the one true judge has justified us. He's declared a favorable verdict for us because Christ Jesus has died. He's taken the blame, as Mark was saying. He's canceled what's owed. And we know the price has been paid because Jesus has been risen from the dead, has been raised to life. If there was any more left to pay, he'd still be in the grave paying the price. But God has raised him up. God has shown that he's pleased with the sacrifice Jesus offered by raising him up to the right, to his right hand, no less, to that position of power and authority. From where he intercedes for us. He argues our case. Imagine the scene. Imagine the devil sidling up to God. Have you seen what Graham's been up to? Have you seen those attitudes he's harboring? That critical spirit, that that unforgiveness. Have you seen that pet sin? How often has he said he'd never do it again? He's hopeless. You are wasting your time. And I might agree with the devil. But then Jesus thunders back, No! I died for him. I bore his punishment. There is nothing to pay. You have no case. Now he is united to me. His destiny is my destiny. I could no more condemn him than I could condemn myself. That is what Jesus says, because that is the truth for all who truly trust and are following Jesus. And so he says, on your way, Satan, on your bike, your case simply does not stand up in court. That's what he says about me. That's what he says about you, if you're trusting in Jesus. And seated as Jesus is in that place of supreme authority, what he says goes. People can argue, but they cannot overturn his decision. And if you are united to Christ, no one can dislodge you from God's favor. Because Jesus, his beloved son, is arguing for you.
His verdict is guaranteed. And then fourthly, his love is all-conquering. This is Paul's final who. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? uh, Paul brings forward a list of things that we might think could separate us from the love of Christ or things that when they happen to us we might think that we no longer that God no longer loves us Christ no longer loves us trouble in life trials difficulties hardship hardship and that might be financial it might be other things persecution people uh, trying to squash us to beat God out of us Um, pressures distresses caused by an ungodly and hostile world Or famine or nakedness, he says. The lack of adequate food, the lack of adequate clothing. clothing. Some Christians have experienced that, are experiencing that today, I'm sure. The things, it's interesting because those things are the things we might be tempted to run to other gods to provide. The gods of our career or the gods of our material possessions, the gods of our bank balances. Danger, he says, or sword, the risk of death. Indeed, the experience of death. These things test our faith and test our faithfulness. And Paul reinforces the list with a quotation from Psalm 44 that that depicts Israel being surrounded and persecuted by godless and hostile nations. They, They feel like they're sheep to be slaughtered. It's interesting, isn't it? You think of how that uh, phrase is used of Jesus, uh, of, of the, um, the suffering servant, and thus of Jesus in, in Isaiah 53. As Jesus, so his people. Real sufferings, hard to bear. Paul had experienced them. He knew what he was talking about. This is just not empty rhetoric. He knew whereof he spoke. And the first readers of this letter would experience them if they hadn't already. Many at the hands of Nero, as we saw. How did they bear all that? Because they knew this security that Paul is talking about. Can any of these things separate us from God's love? Well, Paul says, no. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Super conquerors, we could translate that phrase. Not in our own strength, but through him who loved us. We are winning a most glorious victory. Someone has translated it. It doesn't look like it. But hanging on to Christ, that's what victory is. He does the rest as we hang on to him. Now surely Paul might say, you're just getting carried away here now. Talking about bearing up under these things is one thing. But but actually winning victories through them, how can that be? Well, it is God's way. What happened on the cross, isn't it? Winning the victory through the greatest suffering ever. And if you read accounts of the suffering church, you will actually see this. You will detect the savour of victory in amongst the suffering, the pain, the seeming defeat, the death. Here's uh, Richard Wurmbrandt, who was a pastor in Romania, what was communist Romania, back in the day when the church there was persecuted dreadfully. He's talking about a young girl who'd been discovered to be telling children in her neighbourhood about Christ, and the priest, police decided they'd have to, they were going to arrest her. But they decided to increase her agony 
by arresting her on the day of her wedding day. She was about to be married. And he writes, The girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. And when she saw the secret police rushing to arrest her, she looked towards her groom, her beloved, and then she held out her hands to be handcuffed. And as she was handcuffed, she kissed the chains And she said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. That's victory right there. They can't beat that out of her. That's victory. More than conquerors. Through him who loved us. It's interesting that he uses the past tense there. He loved us. Well, surely he's thinking of the cross. God has always loved us from the beginning to the end. And will always. But he's thinking of the cross, perhaps the place where Christ proved his love for us once and for all. And if his suffering proves his love for us, then our suffering cannot possibly prove the opposite, cannot possibly separate us from the same love. Do you remember back in in verse 17, we read, um, now we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We should expect to share in Christ's sufferings if we expect to share in his glory. And Jimmy Dunn, a theologian, comments on this. If we share in sufferings for Christ's sake, this should be seen as evidence of our union with the crucified one, not cause for doubting his love. Evidence of our union, not cause for doubting. Because he suffered. When we see suffering in our lives, we accept it. We see it as evidence that we're joined to him. And so Paul Moore moves to the climax of this amazing passage. Verse 38, I'm convinced, he says. I am convinced. He's thought about it. He's come to this rational, settled conclusion. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. And nothing will. He gives another list. And it's ten items. Ten items which some might think powerful enough to create a barrier between us and Christ. It's a, it's a lyrical passage. It's almost poetry. So, so let's not try to tie down too tightly the categories he mentions here. But he talks about neither death nor life. While you can understand people being frightened of death, sometimes the upheavals of life seem to threaten our security even more. No, says Paul, they don't. Neither angels nor demons. Again, we can understand why Paul mentioned demons. Yes, they do have some derived power, but they can't separate you from Christ because any power they have is ultimately um, allowed them by Christ. They are under his ultimate power and sovereignty. But why angels? Interesting that he mentions angels and demons together. He's not referring to uh, anything by uh, Dan Brown, I'm sure. Uh, Perhaps Paul's point here, and uh, when he mentions non-specific powers later, that 
any cosmic agency you can think of. These things may look frightening from a human point of view, but they cannot alter our destiny. Later on this month, we will be plunged into the darkness of Halloween. People think it's just a bit of fun, but behind that lies dark powers, and they can be very scary, and they do scare people. But if you're joined to Christ, there is no need to be scared. Yes, we take them seriously. Yes, we don't trivialize them. But we don't have to be in fear of those powers. Or any other cosmic agency. They may look frightening, but they cannot alter our destiny. Yes, these powers are real, but we need not be intimidated. Their power simply cannot be compared to our Lord's power. And Paul uh, cannot imagine any ruler in heaven or on earth good or bad, able to remove us from Christ's love. That includes Caesar, Nero, includes Putin, or Xi, or Trump, or anyone else you can think of. Neither the present nor the future. Neither height nor depth. Perhaps a reference to the immensity of the universe that that can leave us feeling tiny and insignificant. It's so... It's so, the the dimensions are so vast and we're just tiny, tiny. How how can we possibly survive? Uh, Nor anything else in all creation, he says. That's the catch-all, just in case he's uh, left something uncovered. And I think probably that anything else includes coronavirus, by the way. It cannot separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Everything in creation, even those mutant things that are the the result of sin, twisting good things, they cannot separate us. Everything is under God's control. So nothing can get in the way of God's purpose. And he made it his purpose to love us from eternity past to eternity future. And that love is expressed in his son, Jesus Christ. This is how secure we are. If we are in Christ. So why is Paul telling us this? He's not wanting to make us complacent or smug as believers. Remembering he's explaining the whole letter is him explaining why the gospel is such good news. Why it is, as he says in chapter 1, why it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. This is why he says. Because the good news is that he has purposed, he has decreed to take hold of a people for himself, to send his son to die for them, to unite them to his son, Jesus, and so enable them to live out the reason for which they were created, the reason we were created, a redeemed, restored, rescued, salvaged humanity that is going to rule over a wonderful, new, recreated earth. That's God's purpose. That's his gospel. Under the lordship of the coming king. Jesus the king is coming. That's the gospel. And nothing can thwart God's purposes. Don't be afraid of what men or women or even emperors can do to you. Don't be afraid of what life can do to you. You are secure. 
We who believe in Jesus, this is the solid platform from which to take off, to live as God has recreated us to live, even in this sick, threat-filled, groaning world. For all who believe. Does that include you? Are you believing? Are you clinging to Christ? If not, what stops you? Where else is your security? Why do you think that thing, wherever it might be, including your own ability to navigate life, why do you think that's giving you security? You won't find this security anywhere else. Look to Christ and live. Four questions then we had throughout this passage. Four who's. Who can be against us? Who can bring any charge? Who condemns us? Who shall separate us from God's love? And Paul's answer, no one. Many may try, but no one can. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head And clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Before we sing that song, let's pray. Father God, thank you for these glorious, glorious verses. I stand here as if I'm looking up to a mountaintop and I just, Lord... I cannot possibly convey the grandeur and the glory. So I pray for your spirit to be at work doing that in our hearts and minds. Helping us to see, to grasp this vista. And helping us once more to turn to Christ and say, yes, I don't want to be anywhere else. I want to be in Christ. I'm clinging on to him because that's all the security I know I need. And Lord, I pray that particularly for those people under pressure, people who are hurting, people in pain, people worried, people anxious, people struggling because they've lost their job or, or, or whatever it might be, Lord. Please just bathe them in that sense of your security today. And if there's anyone watching who is just resisting in their heart because they want, just don't want to bow the knee. They want to go on living their own way. They love what the world has to offer and they think it's better somehow than what you have. Lord, I pray, just melt their heart, break their resistance, give them eyes to see and may they turn right now in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.